Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We hope you enjoy our journey through the book of Acts, exploring the many powerful actions of Jesus Christ as he continues to move and teach us through his apostles by his Holy Spirit, empowering the explosion of the church to expand from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, which is you and me right here and right now, where we move from spectators to participants and join with Paul in preaching the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's now join Pastor Jordan Moody in our new series, Acts, The Movement Begins. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. All right, so let's turn to Acts chapter 6. Last week we did verses 1 through 7. I'm going to be doing really all of chapter 7 today. We're not going to be reading every verse. We're going to summarize a little bit of what's going on. Uh, Today the message is entitled, Stephen's Martyrdom and the Presence of God. And be really examining the presence of God that is here with the people, and even with Stephen in his martyrdom. He becomes the first martyr of the church, and we'll describe and explain what's going on there. But let's look at verse 8, and I'll be reading uh, into verse chapter 7 for a little bit, and then I believe I'm going to skip and go to the end uh, a little bit here as well. We'll be hopping around there, but I'll, I'll explain here. Verse 8, Acts chapter 6. Word of God says this, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia. So different synagogues that were gathering and different kind of meeting places for Jewish people there were gathering. And they all got together and they rose up and disputed with Stephen, argued with him. Verse 10, Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He spoke so full of the spirit and with such eloquence and and winsome wisdom that they couldn't stand it. So verse 11, they changed course. Then they secretly instigated men who said, So false witnesses. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and they seized Stephen. They arrested him and brought him before the council. Does any of this sound familiar? Kind of just happened to Peter and John, but it also happened to Jesus not long ago. When this was written. Same kind of thing. Stir up some false accusations and false testimony. And then verse 13, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, speaking of the temple and the law. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Fascinating verse, we'll look into that. And then let's begin chapter seven. It says, and the high priest said, are these things so? And then we get in verse two, and Stephen said. And then we get actually the longest sermon in the book of Acts. It's the longest discourse that's given. And it's fascinating because the longest sermon doesn't come from Peter or Paul. It actually comes from Stephen. This is his one message, his one gift to the church that we have today in some ways he, he, he preaches this sermon. 
in my Bible it says a speech, but it's, it's very much a sermon that he preaches to the council, the Sanhedrin, the priests, these people who have arrested him are against him. And so let's just begin reading some of it. Again, like I said, I don't think I have time to read all of it, but let's just, and I'll, I'll summarize it in the message today. But brothers and fathers, hear me, he says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred, go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after that, his father died. God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others. They would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years. This is the time period they were in Egypt, enslaved. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. After that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Here he is beginning in a magnificent history of the people of Israel. Like our forefathers, the George Washingtons, the Thomas Jeffersons, the, the Abraham Lincolns. This is what he's doing. He's going back into their history of this people. And he's reminding them of how God was with him in Abraham. And we'll get to all of this, explain what he's really doing here. But you'll look at verse 9. He says, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. And God was with him and rescued him out of all of his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. If you go down to verse um, 20, it says in verse 20, at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up three months in his father's house. If you go to verse 30, it talks about Mount Sinai and how God spoke in a flame of fire there, but also the flame of fire in a bush, the burning bush, God speaks to Moses. He goes down to verse 36 and 7, he talks about the Red Sea, the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, he talks about going on even beyond that in Egypt and then the exile. He mentions in verse 43 how they took up the tent of Moloch and worshipped false gods and God sent them away to exile. And then let's read in verse 44 for this is where he starts to bring it to a head here. Verse 44. And our fathers had a tent of witness. That's the word for tabernacle. That tent where they would worship God in the wilderness that would travel with them. It's tent of witness. So verse 44, the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Verse 45, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked him to find a dwelling place for God of Jacob. So the dwelling place would be what? The temple. So verse 47 but it was Solomon who built a house or a temple, a permanent structure for him. And then verse 48, this is where he gets serious. He says, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. And the prophet says this, this is a quote from Isaiah 66. He quotes, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is a place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? 
Meaning God is much bigger than any building that you make. Verse 51. And this is where he gets pretty aggressive, okay? (laughs) Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and of ears, so outwardly you might be uh, adhering to the law, but inwardly you're disobedient. You always, here's the key, you resist the Holy Spirit just as your fathers did, so do you. Which the prophets did, your fathers, um, did your fathers not persecute? He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that's Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered and crucified, right? You received the law as delivered by angels and yet you did not keep it. What do you think their response is going to be, right? Verse 54. And when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. That's the KJV version where you would say they gnashed their teeth, right? Verse 55, but he was full of the spirit. And this is a miraculous statement here. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, this is Stephen, I see heavens opened and the son of man or Jesus standing at the right hand of God. But they... The people around him cried out with a loud voice. They were angry. They stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear it. And they rushed together at him and overtook him. And they cast him out of the city, just like they did Jesus when they crucified him outside the city walls. And they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments, taking out their outer garments. And they laid them at the the feet of somebody. And who is that? The feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said these things, he fell asleep. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these words and your truth. And Father, we we are in desperate need of these truths today as you speak very poignantly and straightforward through Stephen today, God, speak to our hearts as well. God, as we learn about what you've done in the past, help us to recognize that this spirit is working within us today and is in this church today, is with us as your spiritual temple. God, we, we honor you and we worship you today. Thank you for the season of Advent. So we long for your coming to return again one day. Thank you, God, for coming to earth for becoming our temple, becoming on fulfilling our, the law, for meeting all of the standards that we could not meet and being our final sacrifice. God, we're grateful for that today. Speak your truth through us and through your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said in Matthew, I believe it is, he says, if the world hates you, Know that it is because they hated me before they hated you. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. Matthew 16, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return? for his soul. One of the second century church fathers is named Tertullian. He lived in Carthage in North Africa and when the persecution of the Christians was at one of its apex in its time, 
In those days, the, he says, the blood of the martyrs soaked the earth as believers were fed to the lions, beaten, whipped, sawed in half, put to death by the sword, burned in fire, and chained in prisons. Tertullian maintained that more Christians were persecuted and mown down, and more, the, more, the more they were, the more they would multiply because the blood of the Christians is the seed of the church. Tertullian's statement was later brought in and throughout church history. Augustine uses it in a sermon where he says, the earth has been filled with the blood of the martyrs as with seed. And from that seed have sprung the crops of the church. They have asserted Christ's cause more effectively when dead than when they were alive. They assert it today, they preach him today, their tongues are silent, their deeds echo around the world. They were arrested, bound, imprisoned, brought to trial, tortured, burned at the stake, stoned to death, run through, fed to wild beasts. Yet in all their kinds of death, they were jeered as worthless, but precious is the, in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And we're reminded of these truths today. It's hard for us sometimes to recognize the reality of this because we live frankly, in America. We, we receive, probably today, it's becoming more of a reality for us as Christians, as we begin to recognize some of the pressure as we live, yes, in a post-Christian, post-modern, post-truth world, that we are receiving a lot more pushback and pressure as religious people, as people of faith, followers of Christ. We see that even as of recent, I would say, but if we recognize places like Josh is in today, in India and other these places around the world, especially in the Middle East, you'll see that this kind of persecution and martyrdom still exists today. This isn't a story that we look back on and think, well, it was tough during those times and I'm glad that doesn't exist today. We can praise God that we have freedom. I can stand here and preach boldly the truth of Jesus and fear no repercussion. There might be a day when we aren't sure if that would happen or what would happen. But we are thankful for that. But we also recognize that in the past year, this is speaking of 2021, that 360 million Christians or one in seven believers around the world suffered significant physical persecution for their faith. Every day in 2021, an average of more than 16 believers were killed for following Jesus. Every day. With close to 6,000 total martyrs, this is from Open Door USA, by the way, with, with close to 6,000 total martyrs in 2021, it, it's a 24% increase in Christians killed for the faith that year. Most dangerous countries include Afghanistan, now that it is run by the Taliban, and Christians are being hunted all over the country, and especially places like North Korea, which are the most hostile. Um, places like Somalia, uh, Libya, Yemen, Eritrea, Pakistan, Iran, North Korea the, are some of the predominantly most dangerous. India is still rising as different aspects are starting to put a lot more pressure on uh, Christians there uh, than, than in the past. But what I want to do to begin with, not knowing I understand we have to get through some of this material today, that I wanna, but I, I don't want to I just want to impress upon you the reality of these things. I'm not sure if you have uh, looked at or read, this, is a, this book actually now is probably about 100 years old, but it's Fox's Book of Martyrs. not sure if you've heard of that. Uh, but it is a detailed history of martyrdom from uh, really Stephen to uh, the 1800s. I believe it was written, like I said, about, a, about 100 years ago or so. But the book begins with detailing uh, Stephen as really the first martyr of the church. And it says, Stephen... Uh, when 
upon this great persecution was raised against all who profess their belief in Christ as the Messiah or the prophet. We are immediately told by St. Luke that there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem following this death of Stephen that we just read about. About 2,000 Christians with Nicanor, one of the, uh, the seven deacons, suffered martyrdom during that persecution that arose right after Stephen. James the Great was one who, fought, who fell er, uh, after this. Um, it was the apostles' extraordinary courage and undauntedness and fell down at his feet to request his pardon, professing himself a Christian and resolving that James should not receive the crown of martyrdom alone. Hence, uh, himself and another were both beheaded at the same time. Thus did the apostles, apostolic martyr, cheerfully uh, and resolutely receive the cup that had been told that our Savior was ready to drink. Timon and Parmenaeus, who are mentioned in Acts 6 as part of the seven, were also martyred at the same time. Philip was next. He was scourged, thrown into prison, and afterward crucified in AD 54. Matthew, as you're familiar, the tax collector, the disciple, was a, uh, the scene of his labors was Parthia and Ethiopia, in which later the country, he suffered martyrdom by being slain with a halberd in the city of Nab, uh, Nadaba. Uh, James the Less, uh, he was elected to the oversight of the churches in Jerusalem, the author of the epistle ascribed James. And at the age of 94, he was beat and stoned by the Jews and was finally had his brains dashed out with a fuller's club. I know some of this is gruesome, but I think it's recognizing the church history that's passed down to us of what the apostles especially suffered. Uh, Matthias was rumored to have, uh, church history says that he was stoned at Jerusalem and then beheaded. Andrew, uh, who brought the gospel to the Asiatic nations, uh, was taken and crucified on a cross, uh, the two ends of which were fixed transversely on the ground, kind of an X like St. Andrew's cross that's known today. St. Mark, Mark was dragged to pieces by the people of Alexandria at the great solemnity of the Serapis, their idol, ending his life under their merciless hands. Peter, as you may well know, is pretty famous for this, and that he was uh, crucified with his head down and his feet upward, himself so requiring this because he, as he said, he was unworthy to be crucified after the same form and manner that his Lord Jesus was. Paul, uh, later on, is said that the soldiers eventually came for him in Rome where he was placed in a place of private execution so that others wouldn't witness his execution, where after he made prayers, they gave his neck to the sword. Jude was crucified in AD 72, Bartholomew, uh, brought some of the language of, of the gospel to India, and he was at length cruelly beaten and crucified by the impatient idolaters there. Thomas was martyred by being thrust through a spear. It goes on and on. Luke had been hanged uh, as an olive tree, uh, hanged at an olive tree. Simon was crucified in AD 74. John was the only one who, didn't es who escaped a violent death. And he writes, I think God spares John specifically to, as he's banished to the island of Patmos in exile, he writes the book of Revelation and he dies of old age. And then Barnabas is one of them as well. Uh, they think even maybe he was near Masada at the time, but he, um, 
was, was killed as well, I believe. And so it goes on and it details different histories. In fact, what's fascinating to me is the very end of this book uh, details the life and ministry of Adoniram Judson, uh, who was persecuted greatly in Burma and uh, yet brought the gospel to the people of India. I named my son Judson after him. He's a fantastic um, influence on my life and his ministry. And so the point of sharing all this is not just to be um, extraordinary or, or gruesome in any means, but it is to remind ourselves of the history of the church that we stand on today. The comfortable seats that we get to enjoy, the freedom uh, that we have in this country. It wasn't purchased freely, right? Many, many lives were given. And then the freedom that the church has and the, the message of the gospel that is going all over the globe even at this moment. We're reminded that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church in which it grows. Every time the persecution and martyrdom comes about, uh, the church is not stopped. <laughs> the gospel does not end. The church continues and grows and proliferates and multiplies and increases by the power of the Holy Spirit, which can never stop. And I think that's important for us to remind ourselves as we look at this passage today, this extraordinary message of Stephen as the first martyr of the church. And so this first idea here is back in chapter 6, verse 8, as we look at Stephen in particular, what's going on here. His name means crown or victor, kind of a crown that you would receive. And he was a Hellenist, a Greek speaking. He was one of the seven that was chosen, as we looked at last week, to help minister to the church and serve the people in need. But he had been blessed by the apostles. He was full of the Spirit. It's almost as if when Jesus blessed the 70 and sent them out, the apostles came, laid hands on the, the seven, and Stephen being one of the examples given here, they bless him, and then he goes out and works apostolic signs and wonders. It's extraordinary. And I believe it's one of the first people outside of the apostles doing anything of this like. And so it is significant, the amount of impact that he's making. It says he is full of grace, he is full of power. Earlier I had mentioned he's full of the spirit. Later on it's full of wisdom and of the spirit again. And there's something that follows Stephen. It is this, this spirit and this presence of God that we are reminded through this whole chapter that is with Stephen. That Stephen is full of the spirit and the presence of God is with him no matter what, even into his very last moments of life here on this earth. And so, Stephen's preaching raises quite a stir. The different synagogues get together. Synagogue of the Freedmen, these are different locations uh, kind of surrounding the Mediterranean region. And the synagogues are little kind of gatherings, different gathering places and halls where Torah was read and taught in the different, different cultural kind of groups as different languages were spoken in those synagogues. And so these synagogues band together, gather together. Paul, or Saul, is part of this group. Uh, most likely coming from the synagogue of Cilicia. And uh, as disciple, he was a disciple of Gamaliel who was part of that synagogue as well. So they get together. And I don't believe they invited Stephen as like a guest speaker, all right? I don't think they had like a weekend conference and said, let's debate these topics together or had a nice little televised debate, right? Between as we see with the presidential candidates and everything. Um, I don't think he was a guest speaker, okay? I don't think they really invited him. They came up to him and disputed with some of the things that he was preaching and teaching and the things that were going on. And yet Stephen didn't back down. I don't think Stephen was a very guy, a kind of guy who backed down much of anyone, okay? Uh, he says in verse 10 that they could not withstand. They didn't want to hear it. They couldn't withstand the wisdom in which he was speaking, meaning he was preaching to them truth. They didn't want to hear the truth. They wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. And so he, they rose up and disputed with him, 
They couldn't withstand the wisdom in which he spoke and this Holy Spirit that was with him. The presence of God was with Stephen and that was not something they wanted. And so they fabricated false witnesses. They set up a kangaroo court, you could say. Again, like I had when we were reading, this is exactly the same kind of scenario uh, that they did against Jesus. Fabricating false things and situations, they arrested him at night, and they broke a whole bunch of their own laws in courts that uh, justified that because of the extreme measures that they needed to get Jesus on a cross. And so, they made up some statements, but they also said true statements. It's kind of interesting, the things they accuse uh, Stephen of, uh, is saying like, uh, he says things like this, that Jesus of Nazareth will tear down this place and change the customs of Moses. That's their accusation. And so what's funny is the whole sermon of chapter seven is answering this accusation that Jesus of Nazareth has come to change the customs of Moses, change our religion, and tear down this temple. How dare anyone suggest those things? And Stephen's like, well, you're not wrong, right? You have those kind of things, you're being accused of something that you, well, actually are saying. And actually Jesus said. For in John chapter two, verse 18, Jesus says this. After Jesus cleanses the temple, they say, what sign will I show you? Jesus says, I'll destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up again. But John gives us an understanding of this. He says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Disciples like Stephen. Remember that he said, I would tear down this temple and I will rebuild it through my resurrection in three days. That this temple will no longer need to be a place of sacrifice and atonement. For my final sacrifice being the Lamb of God will be laid upon the altar. There will be no more need for this temple for I will be your mediator, I will be your high priest, I will be your sacrifice. That's what Jesus is doing. He is fulfilling all of these things. And so we, we do, in some ways, give pause, and we recognize that some of you are more adept to change than others, but anything, sometimes something changes, big change comes in. There are a lot of people who resist that. And, and naturally, you can imagine the thousands of years of history that the Jewish people have been practicing this, you could say, this uh, change that has come about is coming suddenly with the coming of Jesus. And so we recognize, and I want to give pause to that of just saying, well, I can't believe they didn't see it and they're so silly. Well, so much of us are just like that when any kind of change comes along. And yet, what they didn't do was investigate and search the scriptures to see if these things were true, like the Bereans do. Instead, they resist it. And you could tell it's coming from a source of pride and anger, and I think often satanic oppression and deception. And so Stephen preaches the truth, but what do they do? They stop their ears, they don't want to hear it, and they go after him instead. And yet we come upon this phrase in verse 15 that I believe kind of sets this scene for what's about to occur. It's a curious verse, and curious, I mean, it's curious, it's a unique verse. Verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It's a unique statement, and I believe there's a purposeful reason Luke is telling us this. It's to make connections to someone else in the Old Testament who also had his face shining because he was in the presence of God, and who was that? That was Moses, right? Moses, in Exodus 34, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of testimony, these are the law, the Ten Commandments, he has them as he comes down. He has them in his hands, he comes down from the mountain because he had been with God. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. 
Aaron and all the people saw of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid of him. Moses actually is said to have to wear a veil after that. He had been in the presence of God upon the mountain. He had been almost struck with the presence of God in such a way, where God says, if you see any more of my presence, you will, be, you will die. And so what we see here is that there's a clear connection that is being made. That this person of Stephen is standing in such a place where it's as if the presence of God is in such a way with Stephen, it is as if his face shines and people can't help but see the difference that God and his spirit make upon a believer. And so I don't know if his face literally shone or it was as if his face shone. The point that is being made is that when Moses was with the presence of God, his face shone. Stephen now is representing the spiritual presence of God to these people and they see it as if God is with him and yet that still isn't even enough. So Stephen preaches a whole sermon about the presence of God. So, so look at this number two of our points is that the presence of God was, yes, with Stephen, but also with the patriarchs. And we, as I said, you could read through all of chapter seven and you would get a nice, succinct history of the people of Israel from the calling of Abraham to Jacob to Isaac to Joseph to Moses to the exile. You get this amazing sermon to the point where some people are like, Stephen's preaching a sermon to them of things they already know. Uh, but yet he's reminding of, them of the point that he's trying to make. That the presence of God was with the patriarchs and is with us now. In some ways you could say he's, he's slaying, he's trying to kill the sacred cows. I said that phrase to someone else earlier and they didn't know what I was talking about. I'm not sure if that's an older person phrase and Gen Zers don't understand what a sacred cow is. I'm not sure. But um, a sacred cow is this kind of idea of something that you uphold with a certain dignity and honor that really does not deserve that. It's something that you cannot touch, right? You don't touch our sacred cow, okay? Churches, every church has a few sacred cows lying around and you don't want to touch that sacred cow or people freak out, right? And you're like, why is that so important? And we're like, we don't know why, but it is to us, right? And I won't mention what those things are. I'll let your mind freely go there, okay? But that's the idea that he is speaking to the people of Israel saying, you have a few sacred cows. Now, justly, they are sacred because God has given them to them. The temple, that's a pretty amazing, extraordinary thing. The tabernacle, the land, the promised land, the law that is given specifically to who? The Israelite people. God has spoken and used the Israelite nation as a vehicle to deliver the Messiah to the world. Jesus was what ethnicity? He was a Jew. Where was he born? Bethlehem, in the land of promise, right? So their trust often, especially here with these religious leaders, was placed in the law, was placed in their ethnicity, was placed in who they were born, that they were a son of Abraham. So it didn't matter whether they believed or not, as long as they did the things that they were supposed to do. That's all that mattered. And so when Jesus kind of came and delivered this, in a sense, this new law, this new covenant, this new way, they were not receiving of that. They didn't follow John and say, I'm going to repent from that and turn to receive the Lord Jesus. They, they wanted to uphold the power positions that they had. And they relied more on a temple and a building and a law and words than they did on the God who gave them those things, right? And so they were focusing on a sacred cow more than they were the one who made the cow, right? If that's a simple way to describe this. And so what, what, what uh, Stephen does is he goes back to their history and says, listen, listen, God was with Abraham and he was with him in a land called Ur, 
which happens to be not even close to the promised land at all. He was with Jacob and the patriarchs as they were in the land, but as they traveled outside the land to a place called Egypt. And God was with, and his presence was with a person named Joseph in the land of Egypt. As God used and his presence was there with the people in Egypt to save them and rescue them in the exodus outside. God was with a person named Moses as he called him and raised him there in Egypt and sent him out to Midian. God was with him there. In Midian, he called and spoke to him from a burning bush. God was with him at the burning bush. In fact, to the point where it said that ground was holy ground. God was with him in the wilderness as well. As they crossed the Red Sea and wandered, the tabernacle was with them. They were, God was there. God was with them there in Egypt, in Midian, in the wilderness, in the patriarchs, with Abraham and Jacob. And God was even with them when you disobeyed and he sent you away to exile, to Babylon and the foreign lands to judge you because you persecuted the, the, the prophets and you followed after false gods. His point that he is ultimately making is God has never changed. God has always been there. God has never failed us. We are the ones who failed God. We are the ones who looked back at our prophets and tried to kill them because we didn't want to hear what prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea had to say. We wanted to go about our own way. God is the one who called us and made us his people. God is the one who gives us the blessings that we enjoy in this presence as he says the tabernacle and the temple that we have been blessed with. God is the one who gives this, but he's also the one who can take that away. God establishes us. God blesses us. Yet we are the ones who have rebelled and sinned and silenced and persecuted the prophets just like you are the ones who silenced and persecuted and murdered and crucified the final prophet, Jesus Christ. This is what he's getting at. It's a, it's a hard statement. It's a hard sermon, okay? And so he gets into this culminating message in verse 44 and down through verse 53, verse 44 in this passage there where he, he brings it all in a lens and he, he brings it to their most sacred of all cows. And I'm saying not unjustly for having the temple and the tabernacle and the presence of God and the holy uh, of holies there is an extraordinary blessing that the dwelling place of God there in that temporary place was to be with them. That's incredible. But yet they continued to rely on that and they ignored the fact that the very presence of God was with them, with Jesus Christ, walking among them. Uh, God uh, is Emmanuel, God with us. But they didn't want that. So he says God's presence was with us in the tabernacle. God's presence came to dwell through David and Solomon's temple. It's a glorious thing. His fire came down from heaven and took over uh, uh, the uh, sacrifices that Solomon made. An extraordinary thing, yes. And now in Herod's temple. But in a sense, what he's asking them is, look at that temple over there. Is this temple your God? Are you worshiping this building? Have you put your God in a box? (laughs) Have you constrained the Almighty and the Lord of hosts and the Most High to a tiny little building? You would rather put your hope and trust in this man-made place, in a tent, rather in Yahweh, Most High, in his Messiah whom he sent, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. For his presence is with us, dwelt among us, and now the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is with us now and is calling you right now. 
You could say he's, he's putting the, the confirmation call there at the end, the end, to like, hey, the Spirit is calling him. For he says in this statement, verse 48, the most high, this is the most high Lord of hosts, God of gods, almighty, does not dwell in houses made by hands, right? Heaven is my throne, God says. Heaven, the dwelling place of God, the holy habitation of God. Earth is like a footstool to God. He is much bigger than any building that you could make. God is much bigger than you can ever imagine. These things in which we have been relying on and yes, preserving for the nations are no longer needed for they have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is what the whole book of Hebrews is about. They've been fulfilled in Jesus as our high priest, our final sacrifice, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That sacrifices are not needed to be made in that temple no longer. The law of Moses and all of its communication about righteousness and holiness and a people set apart have been filled in the perfect person of Jesus Christ. He fulfilled and kept every aspect of the law. As the Bible says, every jot and tittle, every iota, every little dot of your eye and crossing of your T, Jesus fulfilled it all. He was the perfect son of man and he put him, and we put him on a cross and killed him. This is what he's saying. This is the final sacrifice, the one in which we now rely on, the blood that was spilt for us on those, by those goats and lambs and the sacrifices that God does not demand is the bold message that he's speaking to them. Look to Jesus. He's the Messiah, the righteous one. Receive his spirit. Do not resist is what he says. Just like your fathers have resisted, may you receive the spirit of God now. And that's what he says here in verse 51. He gives a bold message. He reads this crowd. I I would imagine as Peter's preaching, as I often do, I look at you and I read the crowd as people dozing off. Do I need to bring the energy up or something, right? But, But Stephen, no doubt, is preaching and he's reading the crowd and he can see it all over their faces. They, they don't want to hear this. But instead of sugarcoating it and just, you know, trying to just ease out of the truth that he's laying down hard, and he doesn't do that. In some ways, I, 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 his boldness and his courage can only come from a Holy Spirit here because he says these words, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, you stiffened your neck, right? You uncircumcised in heart and ears, wow. The sign of circumcision that you are the chosen people and following the law and doing what's right. As the Israelite people, that might be outwardly done. But inside of your heart and your ears, you don't want to hear it. And so then he says, you, just as your fathers did, you resisted the Holy Spirit. So do you, you, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Name one, right? And so you could say these, these statements that are, that are being made are, are hard statements, Difficult statements, but Jesus spoke just like this as well. You denied God's presence. When God doesn't demand a sacrifice of bulls and goats, as he says in the Old Testament, but a broken and contrite heart, the Lord will not despise. Saul himself in the Old Testament was accused of just making blatant sacrifices and yet not believing it or obeying in the right way. You took the very presence of God, the word made flesh, and you hung him on a cross the righteous one, you have betrayed and murdered him. And now, even now, you are resisting his Holy Spirit who speaks to you now. It's a bold message. And then this final point is this presence of God that is revealed. 
The presence of God is revealed in such a way that I'm not sure if we see many other passages in scripture like this. Verses 54 to the end of verse 60, the presence of God, literally heaven is opened up because the people aren't too happy about what he's just said. He has given them hard truths, called them to return and repent and receive the Holy Spirit and and to repent, but they don't want that. They double down. And they are enraged, they gnash their teeth at him, they yell, it says they stop their ears, there is a crowd, there is that mob violence that you could see coming about, the fervor of the crowd builds in such a way that they drag Stephen outside and they stone him. That's not throwing little pebbles, that is massive rocks that they are crushing his body with. Dozens and dozens of people crushing every bone in his body by stoning him to death. And yet Saul stands by, No doubt Saul probably was in the arguments back and forth as he was a a leader. And he stands by and lets the others stone Stephen. But no doubt the face of Stephen stuck with Saul for the rest of his life. And Stephen comes into a place where he sees the presence of God. It says that, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's as if he gazed into heaven, the dwelling place of God. He saw the glory of God. It's this crazy, amazing place. Moses couldn't even behold the whole glory of God or else it said it would have killed him. Moses was the one who came down from the mountain and his face shone. Now, heaven and earth seem to be meeting upon Stephen right now. The temple, and T. Wright points this out, that the temple in Jerusalem represented the place where heaven and earth were to meet. The place, the locale, the conduit between heaven and God and mankind and the atonement sins paid for was done in and through that temple, the Holy of Holies. Now, he has pointed out that that temple is no longer needed. The temple is with us. The Spirit of God lives within his people. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Your Bible says And so, as he is being stoned to death, it is as if the temple of God, the heaven, opens up and that conduit and location is now between Jesus Christ and his followers. That now all of a sudden in an extraordinary vivid picture, we are reminded that we don't have to go through a a high priest or a sacrifice made by bulls and goats. We go through Jesus to go directly to God to get to heaven to speak to heaven, to to have the ear of God. That heaven is opened up for you when you pray. And heaven is opened up to you because of what Jesus has done because there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so Stephen is that example for us all to follow. That In some ways, no, you might not see the clouds part back and see into heaven, but in a like manner, we as followers and believers of Jesus Christ, we see heaven opened up to us through a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's an extraordinary passage of scripture that just reminds us that I don't have to travel to Jerusalem and go to a temple. I don't have to go through a high priest. You don't even have to go through me as your pastor. You speak to God right now. Heaven and earth come together in Jesus and his followers and through his church as we are spiritual temples of that spirit And he writes, says that that the human judges might be condemning Stephen to death, but the heavenly court was finding favor. (laughs) 
The, the God, the judge of all judges, the king of all kings, sees Stephen and confirms him as innocent and holy and pure and receives him into his presence. Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. This is that statement of him standing in authority, that he has authority over earth, he has authority over the grave and over sin, and he stands in authority in that place, and we are welcomed into that presence Romans 8 reminds us that in the middle of all of our persecution, whether martyrdom may come for some or not, but for Stephen especially, Romans 8 says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth in comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory that is going to be revealed to all of us one day when our time has come, for there is a time for everything, a time to be born and a time to die. When that time comes for us, we recognize the glory of heaven will be revealed to us for we will be uh, away from the body, but we will be present with the Lord. And yet, this present suffering that you and I might face, the, the situations and persecutions that might come, they do not compare for the glory that is awaiting for us, that inheritance that is preserved for us in heaven. And one day the Lord will return and bring heaven to earth. For that I saw a new heavens and a new earth. A holy city, Jerusalem, Revelation 21, coming out from heaven to merge with earth one day. That you and I will live forever with the Lord on a, on a renewed and restored new heaven and new earth. That is our hope. <laughs> and that is the hope that we will see Stephen once again. I'd love to talk with him and meet with him. And why he didn't just soften his conclusion to his sermon. <laughs> but why did he come out so hard and I could learn a lot from him, I think. But Stephen's last words, we are reminded, are extraordinary. Stephen's last words echo his Lord's last words. Did you, did you see that? Verse 59 and 60. He called out, Stephen says in verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Jesus says these words as well. As Jesus says, at this time receive, I, I offer my spirit to you, he says. And then uh, in these statements, the Lord, do not hold this sin against them. We know the very, very well-known statement of Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In, a, in like manner, Stephen echoes his Lord. He echoes him in like manner. And it's as if Stephen's face is shining and beaming. He smiles as the Lord receives his spirit, even in the midst of the greatest pain he's ever suffered in this persecution, no doubt. And Matthew 5.43 tells us, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And Alfred Lord Tennyson says this in a poem. It's called The Two Voices. He says this. He says, like Stephen, an unquenched fire. He heeded not reviling tones, nor sold his heart to idle moans. Though cursed and scorned and bruised with stones, but looking upward, full of grace, he prayed and from a happy place, God's glory smote him in the face. It's an extraordinary reminder that we do not have to fear those who can only kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. The reminder is for us all, no matter what you face today, no matter what Christians that are our, our brothers and sisters around the globe right now that are running for their lives, that are seeking to be made a martyr, <laughs> people are seeking after them, that we share in that same persevering faith, that same reminder 
that there is nothing that anyone can do to the follower of the Lord. Blessed in the sight of the Lord, right, is the death of his saints. And that is our aim, that is our glory, that is our hope. And I hope for us all today, before we go into the table of communion, that we are reminded today, just like Stephen, in its simplest form, in its simplest way, as Romans 1 reminds us, that wherever we are, even in America today, that we need to be reminded that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but then also to the Greek, people like you and me. To the Jew first, it was delivered. They would receive or reject, but then that, that statement, that, that gospel, good news, would then flourish and explode out from Jerusalem at this point because it's at this point that we end part one of Acts. For Acts and the message of the gospel has largely stayed in Jerusalem, but in chapter eight, through this persecution, the diaspora continues, and this message of the gospel will explode all over the known world eventually in 2023 where we can stand in New Hampshire talking about this message and reading these things that were written 2,000 years ago. Because we, like Stephen, we share in the same faith, the same savior, the same message that we can say with Stephen, we can say with Paul, we can say with Peter, we can say with the apostles who lost their life, that we can say that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power, it is the power, it is the power of God for salvation to anyone and everyone who would believe. And I hope that is you today. I hope that you can come before the table today and be reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for your sins. That you don't have to go to a temple. You can come freely today and be reminded of the offering of Jesus' blood and his body that was laid on a cross for you, that he resurrected over the grave and he now stands alive as he ascends and stands at the right hand of God the Father. And you now can stand in purity before God. You can stand now today by his grace justified in his sight because of what Jesus has done for you for that's the gospel message. And so we come and we believe in him and we call out to him. And that's why we come before the table today.